guys in the Bible. This is a conversation on theology, culture, and God's word. My name is Dylan Keniston, as, and as always, I am joined by the one, the only, my brother in arms, Eric Leupold. <laughs> it's been a while, brother. How you doing, man? Good, man. It's been a while as well. Good to have you here. Yeah, Good to see you. Great to be here. Well, yeah. so for the astute listeners out there, they might have heard in the in the call sign, call sign at the beginning, we used to say weekly. It's a weekly conversation. Um, and there's a little bit of a shift there. You'll notice this is our second uh, season that we're in now, season two, mm. which is really, really neat and really fun that we've been able to do this. By the way, big shout out to our supporters who have been able to help us keep the lights on as we've been oh, yeah, continuing in this podcast. Um, but it's hard to do it in the dark. Yeah, it's hard to do it in the dark, exactly. Um, but now, now, just not because of that, but just because of our own schedules, we had been doing kind of weekly releases. We're going to be changing that to uh, generally bi-weekly releases, mostly just because we found that it's kind of more manageable with our with our own schedules and with like life going on. We've just got a ton going on, little kids, all kinds of things, oh, yeah. you know, all kinds of things jobs going on, jobs, yeah. Other responsibilities. All the rest. But we are still here to make it happen because we love the Lord. We love our listeners. Yeah, um, we love you guys. And what we're what we're leaning into here is a little bit more depth to the episodes. Um, and, you know, maybe a little bit longer form gives us a little bit of space to be a little bit deeper, uh, more time in advance kind of research topics and, and go yeah. Go ahead first and, and, and knee deep in. Yeah. So get a deep seat in the saddle. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, today, so <clears throat> this morning, for this is, again, the second episode of our second season. We're really excited about it. We're really excited to be back. And we are not pulling any punches in terms of topics that we're addressing. You'll notice we dove in last release with a discussion on racism. We had Pavel in to help us to kind of think through some of those things, which are really insightful experience that, experiences that he had shared. Um, so really appreciated that conversation. And today... Um, a little bit of an analogous issue. It's a bit of a pivot, though, to talking about socialism. So uh, we are going to be dealing with a handful of kind of economic topics throughout this season. I think we've got like five or six different episodes along those lines lined up uh, topic-wise. But for today, I guess, uh, Eric, I'm going to turn it over, over to you, brother. Just if you could share a little bit about, um, you know, why have an episode on socialism? Why, why address economic topics at all? Like, I mean, I'll tell you the truth. Almost like... If I'm if I'm sitting in the pulpit, right? Very rarely, very rarely do does like economic stuff ever get brought up. I mean, usually, uh, you know, uh, you know, obviously the gospel is preached, but you know, to the extent that you know social ills are touched on, they tend to be, you know, we're talking about um, pro life issues, or we're talking about marriage issues, talking about you know those kinds of things. Um, we don't typically touch on socialism, and so mm -hmm. I guess what's the why behind you know having an episode on it, and maybe you just unpack a little bit about what it is, why it matters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll definitely be happy to take a look at some definitions and uh, and go deep into that. Uh, why it's important or why it matters. I guess in the last episode with, with Pavel, we mentioned briefly that uh, one of the theories out there was called critical race theory. And that's being espoused by, by many folks that are, that are pushing a, a very racial agenda. And what I mean is... Uh, the, the theory that uh, there's an oppressor and that there is the oppressed and that it's typically divided by lines of race and ethnicity. Well, critical race theory is just a subset of critical theory, which says that there are two groups of people. There is a oppressor and oppressed. And that really does relate to the theories espoused by Karl Marx um, and Marxism, communism. Um, and in some, in some ways has been adopted by those who are pursuing socialism. But I suppose another reason is that 
if you just consider the political environment today, socialism seems to be on the rise as far as talked about or advocated for uh, in government and other other countries as well. It just seems to be that this is really becoming front and center in our own political uh, discourse as mm. a country. So for whatever reason, that that is something that I think we should, as Christians, be willing to address and uh, take a look at and compare with what Scripture has to say. <clears throat> so this me. is like just, just something you mentioned here. Yeah. Um, you know, country-specific. I mean, we might have listeners out there who are listening from mm -hmm. another country, maybe a different cultural context. Like in America, you know, we hear socialism, we hear communism, and generally we think, okay, as Christians, you know, somewhere down the line, you know, we're supposed to love the poor, but, you know, we also know that communism is a dirty word in a lot of circles. So, yeah. like, we know that. But, like, you, like, transition that to another uh, another country, and you might not have the same kind of dynamic where there's, there's this, like, um, you know, reflex against, there's this kind of knee-jerk mm -hmm. reflex against socialism, against communism. You know, we might say that that's a justified reflex, but, you know, a brother in, you know, certain parts of Europe might think otherwise. So, like, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting to me to kind of keep that broader global context. Like, if we're going to say, okay, that, that, you know, a state controlling the means of production is unbiblical. We'll come to definitions in a minute. But if we're going to, you know, make that case, the implications are, are wide, you know, wider than just, you know, here's Christians in America, kind of how, what we're thinking. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I mean, for what it's worth, communism, that word still has a sting yeah. to it. Yeah. But the word socialism, it sounds nicer. I mean, everyone yeah. likes to be social. It's a like, friendlier We all word. like to be one big social <laughs> gathering and party, right? So social, you know, sounds like a great party, right? Well, we'll see about that. So to kind of begin, again, we want to do a, a, a good job. We want to do our homework as we are talking to you, our listener, about these topics. So first, I did some research on Marxism because uh, I wanted to get the background of socialism, right? <clears throat> so one of the references I used was the actual Communist Manifesto, which was uh, produced by Karl Marx and uh, some of his comp uh, compadres. So... Real briefly, though, the concept of Marxism I mentioned before is based on the idea that there's an oppressor and there's the oppressed and that all of human history can be can be organized or defined in that way, that there's a class struggle between one group and another group. Um, and in fact, the, the manifesto says every class struggle is a political struggle. And now the goal amongst the communists was to uh, get the the working class called the proletariat to overthrow the middle slash upper class which was the bourgeois uh, through the conquest of political power now they, they define the bourgeois as the middle class owner of property so it's interesting you know i thought going into my own study that well of course they're only talking about the top one percent Karl marx is only talking about the one percent but that's that's not true i mean if you look into the manifesto itself it makes it very clear the bourgeois are the middle class owners of property. Mm. So uh, they're attacking the middle class in that regard. And, and it's certainly included with that would be the upper class as well. But the stated goals of it was to abolish private property, was to get rid of all bourgeois ideas. So that includes bourgeois freedom, law, property, family, religion, um, everything like that. So that, that was very interesting to read about that, how... They would see, um, let's just say, 
capitalism or, or democracy or anything like that. They would see those laws, uh, concepts of family, concepts of, of freedom and of property. All of those ideas are just bourgeois ideas. They mm -hmm. come from being bourgeois. So they need to be removed. They need to be gotten rid of because, and, and they make it very clear that the material existence of humans determines consciousness. Uh, they say that if you change the material, if you change the physical circumstances of a human, you'll change the intellect, you'll change the ideas. So ideas simply come from the material. So why is that relevant? Well, uh, that's why they can attack all ideas. They don't actually have to deal with, let's say, logical arguments because they would just say your logical arguments are simply um, determined by your material, your economic class. Mm -hmm. Like you, you, you keep making these bourgeois arguments and so I can just dismiss them as simply being a product of bourgeois mentality. So that was the whole idea going on there. Now. Um, I mentioned some of the stated goals. Other goals of uh, Marxism was to have a progressive income tax. Uh, all land was going to be controlled by the public. There would be no more right of inheritance from, uh, from parents uh, passing away. Uh, all credit and banking would be centralized. Uh, there would be free education for all children in all public schools. And uh, basically the only way to attain these goals is through the, quote, forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. So they, they didn't pull any punches in the Communist Manifesto. Uh, Marx didn't. I mean, it was basically a struggle for power, and the goal was to use power, to gain power, and to overthrow uh, the, the uh, current system, if you will, and establish a new system. Now, the goal was going to be the end of private property and the end of violence, the end of oppression, which would be this communist utopia where everyone lives in harmony. Everyone uh, has according to their needs and is giving in accordance with their skills or their gifts. Um, but interestingly, Marx and his friends viewed socialism as a stepping stone to get to communism. Now, let me give a definition of socialism. I'll give from two different sources. So uh, from Merriam-Webster, socialism is, de is defined as... The means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned or regulated by the community as a whole. Now, Encyclopedia Britannica has a longer definition. Socialism is the idea that uh, as a social and economic doctrine that calls for public rather than private ownership or control of property and natural resources. According to the socialist view, individuals do not live or work in isolation but live in cooperation. Furthermore, everything that people produce is in some sense a social product, and everyone who contributes to the production of a good is entitled to a share of it. So society as a whole should own or at least control property for the benefit of all of its members. So in both definitions, the common theme is that community or the society as a whole should control or regulate or uh, or own in some sense property, hmm. okay, or the means of production, right? Now, it's a little nebulous, right? Because what do you mean by the community should do it? It's like it's like saying the people, you know, you know, the people should own the power. Well, that that can be massaged and and very nebulous based on who you are and 
what your definition of the people is. But quite in general, it's the government. I mean, in general, when they talk about the community owning or controlling the means of production, they really mean the civil government because that's how, generally speaking, the community acts through their government. Yeah, and it also – Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> no, I, I think that's, that, that's really good. And it also ties back to the state when they say community kind of mm -hmm. partly because you know, if you just think about it, you know, you, you imagine you're – you're a worker, you've been working for, I don't know, a decade, you've, you've got a small yeah. business, maybe a landscaping business, something like that. And then, you know, some, uh, you know, politician comes along and, and essentially says, hey, all that stuff that you, you know, busted your butt for and worked really hard for, you know, actually, when you were doing landscaping, you drove your machines that, you know, on community roads, and you ate, you know, food produced by the community, you did this based on the community, like everything in some sense, you know, if you push it to that logical extreme, ties back to the community as a whole. So now we think that, you know, really, if you're going to be a nice person, you got to give up, you know, what you worked for and then distribute it evenly to the community. And, you know, somebody might say, no, that's something that like I worked hard for this money for my family. And I, you know, I yeah. didn't necessarily work hard for this money for somebody who's down the street who didn't take the same risks, yeah. who didn't have the same investments. And so now if you have this this dilemma where socialism says, hey, you should go give your stuff to the community as a whole, people say, no thanks, then you need coercion, right? And now what's yeah. the institution that can introduce that coercion? That's the, That's state, the state, right? Yeah. That's interesting is that uh, a, a socialist ideal, I would, I, would, I would applaud it in this regard. It recognizes that humans are, are community creatures, that we were designed for community and this is a sentence which is almost covenantal. So I dropped that term uh, because um, the definition itself said, well, it's obvious, you know, everything that's produced is in some sense a social product. And you had mentioned that. I mean, we could say, well, you know, the farmer plants a seed. He got the seed from somebody else or he uses water that the community shares or the air or the soil. Um, and there's, you know, trade going on and, and, you know, the car that I'm driving was made by somebody else and the oil was produced by somebody else, the gas, the roads. So in a sense, we're all in this together. Like we're all part of, we're all part of a, some kind of a network where we're connected, right? Now that's as far as I'll applaud it, but they recognize the, that humans are a, a social creature, in the sense that God designed us to be in community with one another, um, but the thing is, is that it's been that from the from what I understand of socialism, it's it's it's, it's corrupted, it's twisted, and when you make it coercive, that's where the wheels come off. Yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned yeah. in your definitions, I just it just jumped out at me was yeah. the the externalization of problems and the externalization of solutions so like yeah. what i mean by that is so you're talking earlier about you know private property right private property in in my mind that is the issue like what you do like is there private property yes or no and how you answer that question just the dominoes tumble in one direction or the other so you know you know uh, marx might come along and say you know hey part of the issue here is is private property is private control of the means of production and then private enjoyment of 
those of that which you have produced, right? So if, you know, kind of loosely, you know, definitionally to your point earlier about the distinction between socialism, communism, socialism being a step along the way, Mm -hmm. essentially socialism is, you know, like you said, the state controlled means of production, whereas communism is once you have the state controlling those means, then there's this, in in theory, there's this new uh, utopian phase where everyone gets to equal, you know, on an equal basis, we can talk through that later. According to his need and from each according to his... Yeah, now they get to enjoy that production, right? right? So, So now, how do you go about doing that? Well, you have to control that private property. So it's interesting and... It's also very materialistic, right? Oh, it is. I mean, so I even mentioned, just, like, everything mentioned, is material. Everything. Exactly. So while the problem is external, private property, the solution is external. You need more such and such to the masses, to the yeah. proletariat. So it reminds me of like, you know, every now and then you hear some some politician come along and talk about some country in some part of the world where there's a lot of upheaval. And you say, they just need jobs. You know, people would be fine if they just had more. You know, people yeah. just need healthcare. People just need education. They just need more. I mean, basically, if you gave them more, everything would be okay. And yeah. you wouldn't have the same kind of problems. You wouldn't have the same kind of upheaval. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a confusing anthropology. Yeah. So, so by that, I mean a, a, an understanding of human nature. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, they'll say, well, humans are so shall I say, corrupt or, or, or have so many problems that can't be trusted with private property. So, so basically, if you have private property and you're allowed to do with it as you please, it's only going to end up badly. You're, you're going to oppress somebody or you're going to become part of the oppressor class unless the civil government, the state, comes in and brings justice, hmm. right? But at, but at the same time, uh, another error is that humans are just purely materialistic and that the solution to human problems isn't really a matter of sin or spiritual. It's just a lack of stuff. If we get enough stuff or change the environment, you can change the man. Hmm. So those are some of the two, the two, major, two major errors there, that, it's all, that the solution is material uh, and that humans— it's weird. It's a weird form of, the, of, of, of depravity. Like humans can only do evil with private property. Yeah. But the solution is the group controlling private property because the group won't do evil mm-hmm. with private property, but an ind- individual will. <laughs> so it's a very odd uh, yeah. uh, view of uh, how humans work yeah, yeah. in human nature. Uh, okay. So here's, yeah. here's a follow-up question then. Yeah, like, yeah. isn't this – so some might say, isn't this – in the Bible, like, isn't this something that is Jesus was a communist? Right? Exactly, Jesus yes. was a communist, and and you know the early apostles in the early church, you know, they were essentially living in this commune, and you know some of where this is coming from. I just pull out two passages yeah. real quick. I'll just read uh, Acts chapter two, verses forty-two to forty-seven, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. A wonderful time in the early church. Things are things are happening. You get a wonder. So it's awesome. To his need. And, and all who believed were together and had all things in common Ooh. and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts then i'll move on there's another passage analogous to this acts chapter 4 uh, verses 32 to 35 says now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul so the group they have one heart one soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own they relinquished private property see but they had everything in common and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the lord jesus and great grace great grace was upon them all uh, there was not a needy person among among them for as many were 
uh, as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds that was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Hmm. That kind of sounds like what we've been talking about. Yeah, in fact, if you go into the Greek, uh, it says that uh, for as many as were owners or lands or houses uh, had their land taken from them and given to the feet of caesar and it was distributed to each as he had need is that what it's no oh wait no i'm sorry that's not that's a different we need a hammond on our show (laughs) (laughs) yeah the just thinking podcast i got the the b hammond i was like hey we need that john on our show okay so it's not oh that's not the right translation okay you're right yeah so i I, i'm sorry i say that in jest just to point out like like we gotta make it it's important distinction here that one is voluntary uh, through charity and uh, voluntary giving, and the other is pure coercion. I think uh, the, the very next chapter kind of answers that question. So the passage on Ananias and Sapphira, I'm sure our listeners, uh, some of them might be very familiar with this passage, but if you're not, uh, let me read uh, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who had heard of these things. So you see what happens when you— Yeah, that's right. When you see what happens when you don't give your money away, you die. No, but the the point of this passage, though, is that Peter makes it very clear to Ananias. Like, okay, in in verse 3, like— like that land belonged to you before mm-hmm. you had sold it. And then even after you sold it, you could have disposed with it as you will. So the, the problem with what Ananias and Sapphira did is they were pretending. They were lying. So they sold their property mm. and, you know, under the, under the stated intention that they were going to give it to the church in its entirety. They, they basically were in a way virtue signaling and saying, okay, we're going to we're going to also give away our property and, and give it to the apostles and distribute it amongst the church, but oh, but we're not going to give all of it. Mm. We're just going to, we're going to lie. We're going to say that this is how much we sold it for, but we're, actually that's not true. We sold it for more, but we're keeping back some for ourselves. So the issue was that deception. Mm. And uh, Peter makes it, makes it clear that they were free they were free not to sell it if they didn't want to, or, and they could have disposed of it as they would. They didn't even have to lie. They could have even said, yeah, we sold it for, 
you know, ten thousand dollars, but uh, our you know we our goal was to give five thousand to the apostles. You know, we we're not going to lie about it. We're uh, you know we're going to give some to this, and some we're going to invest it, and some we're going to give to you know our children or whatever the case may be. But so but the assumption is that they had the freedom to do it. But when they chose to lie, that's when things that's when they were judged for it. So, so what, but what yeah. about, what about care for the poor generally? I mean, isn't God's heart for the poor and it, you know, yeah. isn't it, isn't it just greed that comes along and says, no, I don't want to give away my private property to benefit the, the masses. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Bible makes it clear is that, uh, especially in the, in the new Testament, we see that, that Paul writes that God loves a cheerful giver. Hmm. And, and the whole point is that it's supposed to be voluntary. It's supposed to be done out of a love of neighbor, uh, not 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 a coercion, but a love out of charity, um, and and that's something that the Lord that the Lord leads people into. Um, there's a couple of passages that we'll get to later, but um, you know you you mention the love of the the poor. I think that socialism uh, can be, uh, shall I say, motivated out of two. There's two ways in which socialism is motivated in a person's heart. It's out of a sense of justice. So we kind of mentioned what Karl Marx was saying. See, Karl Marx, it wasn't so much about charity for him. It was about justice, right? It's the oppressor taking uh, from the oppressed, and so he needs to give it back. Like, like there's a sense of entitlement and justice there that has to get dealt with. Dealt with, And socialism is a, is a pathway to accomplish justice. <clears throat> Excuse me. But... There's also the sense of charity, right? Like you had just mentioned, like, well, we should care about the poor. People need a safety net. People need to be taken care of. Like, let's let's help the people. Let's end poverty. Let's declare war on poverty. So that's the sense of charity. Now, I would say that they're both, when it comes to the state getting involved in these matters, they're both wrong. Because one is an error of the goal. And one is an error of the method of getting to the goal. That's interesting. What do you mean? The, the ends and the means, right? So mm. the goal of Marxism itself is wrong. The goal of everyone has the exact same to each according to his need. And, you know, the state controls the means of production. Um, and it's a perfect utopia like that. I would say that goal is a misguided goal mm. um, because, you know, it doesn't recognize that we live you know, in a fallen world and that uh, we're not going to get utopia until Christ returns. But, and even then, I think it's interesting there, yeah. you know, in certain places in scripture, there are degrees of reward. Oh yeah. It's and not, there are degrees it's of not punishment. Communism. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, I, I saw as far as charity and the love for the poor goes, socialism is the, is the incorrect method of getting there. Okay. So you can say like, okay, your goal can be good, but if you're doing about, if you're going about it the wrong way, you're also falling into error. And so I think that using the sword, using coercion to take from someone or to force someone to give to another is a very misguided and wrong and unbiblical method of trying to achieve some sort of system where the poor are taken care of. Uh, you know, it's not supposed to be done that way. Um, and I think in both cases that envy... The issue that the, the sin of envy is actually at the root of of all of it, of all of socialism. Um, so let me give you some quotes that that and some uh, some ideas that uh, kind of back this up a little bit. So Winston Churchill, 
great uh, great politician leader uh, during World War II. He said that uh, quote socialism is the philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance, and the gospel of envy. So kind of hang on the last part there. The gospel, the good news of envy, is socialism. Right? That at the heart of it is somebody wants what someone else has and the state has to go in there and make it happen or 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 fix the problem um and another uh another excerpt that i wanted to share and that gets to this issue of envy is from c.s lewis's screw tape letters so i think this one is a little bit more uh difficult to um to expound upon but i'm going to do my best here so uh, but I want to read a passage or a section from the Screwtape Letters. If any of you have not read that, I recommend it. It's a good, it's a good book. It's from the perspective of, of basically the demons as they are trying to attack Christians or to attack God's people. And so C.S. Lewis writes br- brilliantly, um, Screw, Screwtape is the name of a demon. Now he's receiving letters uh, from Satan and from other, other demons. But here's one excerpt from it. Quote, the whole philosophy of hell rests on recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing, and especially that one's self is not another self. My good is my good, and your good is yours. What one gains, another loses. Even an inanimate object is what it is by excluding all other objects from the space it occupies. If it expands, it does so by thrusting other objects aside or by absorbing them. A self does the same. With beasts, the absorption takes the form of eating. For us, it means the sucking of will and freedom out of a weaker self into a stronger. To be means to be in competition. So that's the the section there I wanted to quote. But what I wanted to highlight is that the philosophy of hell is a zero-sum game. That's that's what C.S. Lewis is getting at here. Mm. And what that means is that any gain on your part is necessarily a loss for me. Mm. Like anybody's gain means someone else had to lose. There's no way in which both people gain. Mm. There's no winner on both sides. There's always a loser. And really that is the axiom that underlies Marxism. Because in the oppressor-oppressed narrative, that is exactly the case. The oppressor has because they got it from the oppressed. They are oppressing the working class, the poor. That's the only reason that they have more stuff. There's no other explanation for it. And so it's a zero-sum game. And that is the issue of envy. Uh, that is the whole philosophy of envy. That's the philosophy of hell. And I think that is the underlying sin behind a pursuit of socialism, especially one out of a sense of justice. You know, out of a sense of charity, it's kind of misguided. I can see that. Uh, you know, a genuine love of a neighbor could lead a person to say, I want, I want the state to help the poor. Um, but I think it's still all rooted back to envy and entitlement. Okay, so if, if we can be content then that some of the passages we cited in Acts are what they're not saying, yeah. right, is, you know, state control means production and, and you know, uh, charity through, coer- through coercion. Yeah. If we be satisfied, that's not what it's saying. So what what is it saying then? Because, like, at the same time, you still want to say, okay, if you're in the Church of Christ, you know, people should not be going hungry, right? People yeah. should not be sleeping on, you know, the streets or something like that. You're, you're part of the church. You should be 
cared for by by other believers there's yeah. a couple of now if you'd be cared for by other believers if you don't have family to care for you right so a couple of other passages that come to mind like first timothy 5 8 yep. but if anyone does not provide for his relatives especially for members of his household so there's kind of a you want to provide for relatives broadly but there's a prioritization given to members of house of your immediate household he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever okay so we're to provide for our relatives mm-hmm. then likewise in first timothy 5 verse 16 if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may, ca- may care for those who are truly widows. In other words, there's this recognition that, um, okay, so the church wants to help those who are in need and kind of typified here by by widows generally. So, and in that context, obviously, you know, if you had the, the man who is kind of the economic provider and then if he had passed away, then, you know, a, a woman would fall on hard times in, in that time. Um, but, but the point being that um, now you have the church providing for those who truly are in need. And in the in-between verses is actually a whole bunch of tests that Paul lays out for Timothy about what constitutes, you know, actually being in need. Um, so he's saying, actually, you know, we don't need to have these programs, you know, from a, from a church perspective for A, B, and C individuals. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, what positively can we say? You know, we, we don't want people in the church going hungry. We don't want people in the church... Um, you know, not have, you know, sleeping on the streets. Um, how should we go about yeah. servicing, loving, caring for the poor yeah. amongst us? Yeah. So a couple of things you brought up, the importance of the family. So, so Paul uh, mentions to Timothy the importance of uh, family taking care of. I mean, it basically, I mean, it's pretty strong language. Like if anyone won't take care of their own household, they're worse than unbeliever. Like that's, yeah, that's pretty strong language, Paul. Yeah. Uh, and he also has other strong language in Second Thessalonians about uh, idleness. Mm. So he says here in Second Thessalonians chapter three, uh, verses six through twelve, he says, "Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle." When we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So he's got some strong words about fellow Christians who are maybe taking advantage of some of the generosity and not taking responsibility for their own livelihood when they can do it. Now, that doesn't mean that that Paul is not against charitable giving. Uh, He mentioned several times to the Corinthians that he's taking up an offering for the, the, the people that are suffering in a famine right. in Jerusalem. But even there he says, you know, let the Lord lead how the person is to give, mm-hmm. for the Lord wants a cheerful giver. So he's not going to, you know, pass the plate 15 times or, or force them to give, you know, in accordance with their income. That's a, the Lord's going to have to lead on that. So there's a certain aspect where, yeah, the family has their role to play in taking care of people. And then the church has a role. It's a limited role. You mentioned the widows. You know, it's a, it's a limited role, taking care of the poor, those who are suffering, the widows and the orphans. Um, but even there, it's always supposed to be 
voluntarily mm-hmm. out of a genuine love and a leading of the Holy Spirit rather than a than a than a forcing from above or from outside of some other some other group there. So these different categories of governments, right? You got the civil government, you got the church government, you have the family government, and you have the self-government. Like you are supposed to govern yourself. That means working hard. Your family is taking care of you. That's what they're supposed to do. The church is also there to support the family. And then the civil government has its own duties, but but one of them is not primarily giving out bread. Hmm. That's that's not really it because Here's the, another important aspect is that the civil government can't give out bread in the name of Jesus. They're, they're not the ones giving out the gospel, right? And so um, there's, there definitely needs to always remain when you're, when you're helping someone in need, you're helping them as a whole person, not just physically, but you're also attending to their spiritual needs. And I think... I mean, you get that throughout uh, Scripture. You get that, you know, a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, not just, not just giving things. But I think John chapter twelve um, gives an, another example of of the importance, the centrality of Christ, even when we're talking about poverty. So in John chapter twelve, uh, Mary is anointing Jesus uh, with her expensive ointment. Probably, uh, you know, very, it doesn't really say how expensive it was. I mean, it says it could have been sold for 300 denarii, which is like 300 days wages, you know, which is a lot of you know, money. Probably in our day, I don't know, three, you know, almost a, mostly of a year's salary. So fifty, sixty thousand dollars 60000 something like that. So here's what happens. I'll start uh, in verse 3 of chapter 12. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So, you know, Jesus's words would have been shocking to many Marxists and socialists today because he just said, you're always going to have the poor. You're not always going to have me. And he basically just highlighted the importance of his coming as more than the presence of the poor. And there's a sense in which the poor will always exist. But, you know, Judas was virtue signaling. Hmm. You know, he was basically saying, hey, that should be given to the poor. You know, I love the poor. We should take care of them. Right? Right, Jesus? But at the end of the day, Judas was really the money bag holder. You know, now maybe... He's got he, his administrative fee. He's yeah, see, cutting. he's probably justifying his own actions. He's like, well, I'll just take some here. It's my administrative fee. Yeah. Right? You know, so I kind of... I always think of that passage when I think of, you know, the civil government coming in and saying, hey, guys, give me your money. Uh, let's pay more taxes. You know, let's give it to the poor. Right. But there's always the administrative fee. Mm. Right. That Caesar gets to take for himself. And Judas was doing the exact same thing. And it was it was again, it was out of it was, it was out of greed. But he was claiming to love the poor. Right. So I think it's important to never forget that. Yeah. The poor we're always going to have. That doesn't mean we don't do anything. But we have to always keep Christ as part of that. 
and the civil government doesn't do that they don't they don't give christ out with their cup of cold water they just give material needs yeah. but humans are more than just material that's good uh, you know mark says they're not but he's wrong they're spiritual and material beings you know i i spent a fair bit of time at a church uh on the outskirts of philadelphia and i remember there were several periods where we ha we would have a couple of folks who would come and join us uh, regularly weekly you know not members but just <clears throat> mm -hmm. come in and they would come and hear the gospel um and and had very very serious uh, material needs um yeah i remember one chap in particular who would come and you know he he always needed a bus pass to be able to get around mm -hmm. and you know he didn't have family nearby who was uh, willing or able to support him um, but one thing that struck me, I guess what I'm saying is if you've spent time like around those who are, you know, lower, you know, individuals who have a lower income, you know, high material needs, um, this is not always the case, right? But it's not, un, it's not atypical. It's, it's usually the opposite. It's usually typical that such person's needs are more than they're more than material. You, they, they, they have certain, there, there tends to be a kind of um, uh, finger pointing when, when it comes to how life circumstances fell on me. And, you know, I'm not here because of anything of my own doing. It's because so-and-so did such and such to me or because I had yeah. such and such happen in, in my life. Well, like and, Adam said, the woman that you gave me, yeah, she gave me the fruit and it, I ate. There, right? there tends to be yeah. this, like, this, this externalization of problems that and and really because the problem is externalized the solution is externalized okay therefore because all these bad things happen to me what i need most is not you know uh whatever kind of you know um inner character formation that christ may be offering the church may be offering or more than that what i need most is not necessarily salvation mm -hmm. and eternal what i need most is um a bus pass and, yeah, and nothing's wrong with me, really. Yeah, nothing's wrong with me. So, so that kind of mentality is, um, it's it, it's it's there. Now, that's not all the time, right? That's not in every case. But again, for folks who work regularly with with yeah. people who are in those kinds of life situations, can attest to this, right? Yeah. And and that's not saying that there aren't there aren't real life external problems that happen to these people. Like for example, you know, when we talk about some of the harsh words that Paul has in Thessalonians and his letters to Timothy and elsewhere for idleness, right? You can imagine, uh, let's say there's a man in the church who lives with a disability and his, his, you know, he's got just crippling arthritis in his hands, his, his legs no longer work. I mean, mm -hmm. he's had a, you know, five or six surgeries. The dude just can't do much, Yeah, but he wants to. And in his yeah. heart, he yearns to. Yeah. And that, like, I would look at that and be like, okay, that's that's a man that we can lean into and love and care for. Right. Because he, he, there are some people who legitimately can't. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things I want to mention there is that um, I, I, I completely agree with you. Like, there are, listen, there, we're not trying to say there's no such thing as victims. There are victims out there. And we'll get to some passages to talk about oppression of the poor and what that looks like, right? But if we say that a person, if we say that there's only victimhood and there's never self-responsibility, we actually fall into the oppressor-oppressed narrative. Like, mm -hmm. it's very hard 
you got to be careful because if you only ever say a group or this person is only a victim and they're part of this category of victims, then what you're saying though is that there is a category of perpetrator. There's a, there's a category of oppressor and that is the oppressor-oppressed narrative. Mm -hmm. And when you go that route, you will end up pursuing a sense of justice that is socialism slash communism, the use of the sword to take from the oppressor and to give to the victim. Because again, it's a zero-sum game, yeah. right? But we never want to, we don't want to forget that um, sin is always involved, right? Poverty uh, is, a, is a material, well, poverty can take many different forms. There, there's, there's social poverty, there's relational poverty, there's spiritual poverty, right? But poverty and just like disease and all these other things that have physical manifestations, they always find their root in the fall of man and mm -hmm. sin, right? And, and that's that's not stuff. saying that like somebody yeah. who's dealing with those physical ailments was directly him or herself. No, like their their state was because they had no. some sin that yeah, they had. This person was born blind, but yeah. it wasn't because exactly exactly. exactly. Yeah. So you're just saying broadly because of the consequences of the fall. Yeah, it's now, Adam's fault. If we, we want to finger point, blame Adam. Now but we, we were have, all in Adam. So so that's why. Well, exactly. Like it comes back to identifying ones like thinking, okay, I am the problem, right? Like confessing that sin and realizing that there's something in me that's the problem rather than, you know, <clears throat> saying that there's something out there. Like I will say it, you know, just like I've spent some time with people who, who are in kind of, you know, these lower income situations who have that kind of mentality where it's like, you know, I'm okay. It's just other things happen to me. And yeah. that's why I'm, that's why I'm here. Now, the opposite of that, mm -hmm. I've spent a lot of time with really, really successful people, really successful mm -hmm. people. And have that opposite mentality. The, and their mentality is one of extreme ownership. Not to, you know, lean on Jocko Willink here, but like that's the, the mentality is like, okay, I, if something goes wrong, it's on me, whether that's in my family or in my life or in my whatever, if something goes yeah. wrong, it's on me. And so because I have this, you know, I, it's it, because it's, it's, I have this responsibility to take care of A, B and C. Um, it, it, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, a lot of, and not always, but a lot of times that mentality postures people for success. And I think and pride too, like if you succeed, then you're like, look what I did. That's what I think that's what makes the difference between like a lot of the success, uh, some of the self-help movements and success movements out there that just say, you know, believe in yourself, yes. you can do it, you can do have, it. you know, A, B and C. And when that's when you try to take the goodness of that, the benefit of that, and extract it from a Christian framework, extract it from its appropriate place, then you end in pride. You end in a place that says, mm -hmm. yeah, that's mine. I built that. I'm awesome. And mm -hmm. you poor people, mm -hmm. you, you know, down and you know, you who are down and out. Well, it's just, you know, you're, you're there because it's totally your fault. It's there's the, you know what I'm saying? Which is Job's friends. Right. And the Pharisees. Right. Exactly. So that's when, right. when you take that kind of mentality, you extrapolate it out of a Christian framework, that's the end game. Whereas I think you can temper that biblically, right? So you, that's the tension. On the one hand you have, there's this extreme ownership that apart from Christ leans into pride. Then there's this extreme victimization that apart from Christ leans into you know, uh, externalizing problems and, and victimization, Yeah. you know, and, and what does, and here's the Bible coming in and tempering both of these and saying, look, God is sovereign. It's true that he rules over all things. Not, not a sparrow falls apart from his sanction. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, you human being, you person are still 
you are still morally accountable for the decisions that you make in this life. And the decisions you make in this life are impactful. They have material, tangible consequences one way or the other. So it harmonizes these two in a really, really powerful way, yeah, I think. It does. And I do want to also say you mentioned earlier the importance of um, discerning a person's heart. Mm-hmm. Who is who is going through some tar- hard times, or maybe struggling with uh, with you know with work issues, and and that requires intimate relationship and a knowledge of the person's yes. life. Yes. And that that's that a local can church. Only be done by the family and the church. Yes. The civil government is so is so big, and this is more of a practical aspect. This is this is kind of like a practical reason why the civil government, the state, should not be involved in these kinds of matters is because it can't do it so i can't do it like that yeah you don't know this person yeah it can't discern whether a person is actually genuinely in need mm. or if the person is just seeking to get something that's good for nothing that's good right but that requires intimate personal accountability and a walk in life and yeah like i think of my friend who you know when we we're in philly who always came to church needing a bus pass and i'm like yeah. like Okay, suppose there was a program that just automatically made sure he had that bus pass. I'm like, they they don't know this guy. They yeah. have no idea what he you know can or can't do or what his what his intentions are with this. Whereas yeah. you know if he's living nearby and in this case he didn't have like family members nearby to be able to help him out, that would be that would take priority over you know if they're able to do that over the over church. The church, yeah. But but here like if he's if he's living in the church, he's he's not living there like sleeping there. But he's he he is a regular attender. We see him weekly, at least, if and oftentimes more than that, because he was local. Um, and and we see the context in which this dude lives. We see how, like how he behaves, how he talks. We just we get to know him, right? That's what a difference that makes to yeah. like. And and then you can you can start to see that like okay, you you say you need this bus pass, right? Well, you you had this job, you know, pouring concrete. And how, how's that going, man? Like, yeah. are you able to get there on time? Like, are you, you know, what, what buses are you taking? Do you need a yeah. ride? Maybe you missed the bus one morning. Okay, let me get you to that job site where you're pouring that yeah. concrete. Okay, great. Let's make sure that you're not late next time. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, two months down the line, dude says, well, you know, yeah, I had the bus pass, but I just, I was, they ended up letting me go because... You know, I was late, but really it was someone else's fault because yeah. da, 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 da. Yeah, or how are you spending your money? Are you are you going to the bar every night? Are you buying lotto tickets? Like how, like how are you taking care of your family? You know, all of these questions can only be done. Yeah, but I've also I've also met people like again when this when I was living in Houston, we spent some time with uh you know it, with a particular group where that you had people who were in these mm-hmm. situations, and and there were a number of them, a large number of them who. You know, they, you had people in the church who would come and volunteer their time and their money and come to this place and, ha- and help them out with things like bus passes and would mentor them and, and, and had this tremendous turnaround. We're like, yeah, they actually <laughs> they got to work on time. They were making some some income. They, they you know, they were they they at least had progressed from kind of, you know, low income to, you know, lower middle class and sometimes even middle class kind of kind of increasing their their situation. And a lot of that came from not just pouring money into, you know, uh, resources for these individuals. I don't just mean giving them a check. I mean, like, you know, you're buying them a bus pass, you're driving, you know, you're doing whatever, you're giving them a gift card to something. Um, But, but walking with them through that, doing life with them through Mm. that, what a difference that makes. It's, it's tremendous. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and the gospel is fueling it all. Yeah. But the thing is that we're seeing in our own culture, and we're going to get to some, uh, uh, specific uh, biblical passages on 
oppression and poverty is that we're getting uh, uh, even some even some politicians who are trying to use the Bible to promote socialism, right, or forms of socialism. And so I actually have a video clip from uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who is uh, running for president of the United States uh, for the uh, Democratic Party, Democratic nomination. And this is from the recent uh, Democratic debate. And he, uh, I pulled this clip only because he quotes from Scripture to make his case for what he's about to say. So let me see if I can get this to work, and I'll play it, and then uh, we'll go from there and discuss. All right, so here we go. The worker. Thank you, Mayor. We have to respond to all of these changes, and, uh, you know, in addition to confronting tech, in addition to supporting workers by doubling unionization, as I propose to do, some of this is low-tech, too. Like, the minimum wage is just too low. And so-called conservative Christian senators right now in the Senate are blocking a bill to raise the minimum wage when Scripture says that whoever oppresses the poor taunts their maker. Mayor, thank you very much. Congressman Delaney. So uh, Mayor Buttigieg, he quotes, whoever oppresses the poor taunts their maker. Okay, so in and, and, and defense of an argument for a raising of the minimum wage. Now... I, I did some research. If I, if, by the way, yeah. if, if I had written a paper arguing that in any hermeneutics class, I'd be flunked so <laughs> fast <laughs> and like true. laughed out of the classroom. All right, so sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, okay. Uh, so if you look up that proverb, uh, I'm pretty sure he's quoting from Proverbs uh, chapter 14, 1431, yeah. verse 31. So let me read that one from the English Standard Version. I don't know what version he quoted from. It may have been. It may have been the New King James or the King James Version. He doesn't say. But uh, here's what uh, the ESV says. Uh, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. So uh, uh, Mayor Buttigieg only quoted the first half of the proverb. Uh, he didn't quote the rest of it, which said, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. So generosity is, again, a voluntary thing. Uh, but what Mayor Buttigieg is, is calling for is forced raising of the minimum wage, a use of coercion. So now, but the question is, he is he is saying that oppression, a lack of minimum wage being raised is a form of oppression. And so now as Christians, we need to discern that and say, okay, when, when people just use that term oppression, what do they mean by the term and what does the Bible mean? mean by oppression so <clears throat> excuse me um he takes the concept of oppression but doesn't allow scripture to define it he inserts and i would argue he inserts his own definition of oppression into the into the passage uh a form of eisegesis right reading uh reading into the mm. text of scripture not drawing out of scripture and that's particularly dangerous when you pull from a proverb uh, like that because proverbs can very easily be abused uh if they're not uh, read in their context and with the light of the rest of Scripture, right? Um, yeah, oppression they, means this lack of, of yeah. social benefit that's part of my policy well, platform. And anyone can say I'm oppressed. I, yeah. mean, I mean, you know, your children can say they're oppressed. You don't let them have chocolate for breakfast. You know, I'm oppressed. You know, it's like, well, 
okay, let's hold on a second. So, and you're not, and you're not saying that people who are, you know, living on minimum wage jobs and trying to pay their bills with their houses and stuff like that, you're not equating them to children asking for chocolate. No, but, no, but no, no. yeah, no, I, I know, only, I know you're oh, not, yeah. I know you're not, but I'm just clarifying <laughs> that. But, but you are yeah. making the point that it's like, look, like, okay, w- we actually have to think rigorously, like biblically, what yeah. constitutes oppression? We can't what just make oppression? that fit whatever mold we, we, we want or, or whatever circumstances we find ourselves That's in. That's right. Yeah. Our terms have to be defined by God's word. Amen. So I was looking through all the passages that regarding the poor, especially in the Old Testament and certainly in the New, and what does it mean by oppression? Well, there are five major areas of oppression that I was able to find in looking at the relationship between of the poor and God's people in Scripture. So in the first is being charged excessive interest rates. So the Old Testament law makes it very clear, you know, God to God's people, to Israel, Israel. you are not to charge your brother excessive interest because yep. uh, that would be an oppression of the poor, okay? Uh, being partial to the rich in a lawsuit. Hmm. So Scripture makes it clear that you're not to be partial to either poor or rich. Mm-hmm. So that's where we get the idea that justice should be blind. The law applies to all across the board. So being rich, you can't buy yourself off. Of, of, of punishment and you don't side with the poor simply because he's poor. You, you, you treat them all equally under the eyes of the law. Number three, taking a pledge that is needed to sustain life, not returning it in a timely manner. That one's a little bit more difficult to unpack, but the idea is this, is that if a poor person in, in the times of Israel wanted to borrow some money, so he might go to a, a wealthier person and say, hey, I'd like to borrow some money. And the wealthier person might say, well, okay, here, you can have some money, and in return, I'll take this item. It's almost like bail, uh, taking like, you know, like uh, uh, pleading for bail or whatever. It's like a, almost like a mortgage collateral. in a way. Collateral. It's collateral. It's like, here, I'll take this, uh, this vase of yours or this heirloom of yours yeah. so that, you know, you'll be motivated to come give me back my money when you, when you finish paying it off. But the idea was that it would... It would be tempting for the a rich person to say, "Well, I'll I'll take give me your cloak." You know, the poor person might not have that much to to give as collateral, right? So they might offer their cloak to the rich person as a form of collateral. But the scripture makes it very clear: like you are to return that cloak before before the evening, so they have something to sleep in. Like you're not to take something that is vital for their maintaining of life. Mm. Um, you're not going to have to keep that overnight. You're to return that. So, but again, it's not saying that you have to, you have to give your money as, to them as a loan. But if you're going to take collateral and if you take something that's vital to the poor person's livelihood, you must be generous and, and gentle in how you handle that, right? Mm-hmm. So don't take a pledge and not returning it in a timely manner. Um, number four, withholding agreed upon wages and delaying payment. So, that would be a, 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 a common example of oppression would be, you know, a person works with the expectation that they're going to be paid at the end of the day. And that's how it usually would have been for in the Old Testament. Like you, you get paid a day, a day's wage for working in the field. Right. And you would expect to get paid your money when you're done. So you can go buy dinner for your family and bring it home. Right. But a wicked ruler might say, well, I'll come back tomorrow. I'll give you your money then. I don't have it with me right now. I'll give it to you tomorrow. And that's not the agreed upon, you know, wage or the agreed upon payment. So timely payment of the agreed upon 
wage is uh, is what the Bible demands. And then the last one was <clears throat> using unequal balances or measures to deceive the poor. So uh, Proverbs 20 says unequal weights, unequal measures are an abomination. So the idea there is that, you know, you come to me and you want to buy five pounds of flour and I put, a, I put a stone on the scale that's really four pounds. It says five on it, but it's four. And then I give you, you pay for five pounds of flour, but you only get four. Mm-hmm. So I'm cheating you. I'm cutting corners there. And um, I'm deceiving you. And that would have been particularly harmful to the poor if that were to happen. But, but that's, the, that's the wickedness. That's the oppression that God is talking about uh, throughout Scripture there. So that's, those are the areas that... I was able to find there. It wasn't, there was nothing in scripture that talked about <clears throat> having a minimum wage hmm. or a wage. And if we want to really break it down, what is the minimum wage? A minimum wage is a third party coming in and saying, you need to pay him this much money. And I don't care what you say or what he says, it's going to be at least this amount. But what's interesting is that when you look at scripture about wages, um, and even though this is not a podcast on wages, I just want to give a quick, quick examples for those who are listening who want to uh, look at some passages that talk about wages. There's actually several of them. Uh, one is that um, wages are always agreed upon between the employer and the employee. And probably one of the clearest examples of this is actually a parable that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, which mm-hmm. is the master of the house in the vineyard, where he he agrees to pay the laborers a denarius for the day, and he sends them out. Uh, and then later on, a couple hours later, he finds some other workers and says, hey, uh, come, come work for me and I'll pay you a denarius as well. And he does this at the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour. And then at the end of the day, when he starts giving everyone their wages, the people that the people that worked there first complain. They're like, "Hey, wait a minute! How comes you're paying us a denarius, but then you're paying this guy who only worked half a day? You're paying him a denarius. What? What's up with that?" And actually, the 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 master says that um, he it's his money. He's like. He say, it says in Matthew chapter 20, verse, uh, verse 15, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, so he's being generous by offering to pay a full day's wages to a half-day worker at the end of the day. But the person who worked at the beginning is envious and greedy and is angry at the master for being generous with his money. But the, but the master says it's... Am I not allowed to do with what I choose with what belongs to me? It's his wages and it's agreed upon wages. Um, Because in verse 13, he says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? So again, it's the relationship between the worker and the employer. And that is the wage that is set. And there's other examples. I've I've heard like some otherwise pretty astute exegetes yeah. of scripture point to this passage and say actually you can you can get kind of a, a socialism out of it by by saying hmm. that notice how um, each person what they what they receive uh, is is according to his need 
right? So it's, it's you, I'm giving this person a certain amount, I'm giving that person a different amount, and I can do that. So you're getting, so sometimes people against social might say, you know, why should certain people be the beneficiaries of, of, of you know, benefits that, that I'm not receiving? Um, and, and here, this person said, well, look, you can have some people receiving different amounts, different benefits because of what they need. Um, and uh, otherwise, you know, really, really good exegetes, but man, falling flat on that one. And, yeah. and partly because you have kind of the, the culmination of, of this parable being in verse 15 and 16. The point is, the point of the parable is, am I not allowed to do what I, this is the master talking, what I choose yeah. with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? There's generosity again. So the last will be first and the first last. So mm -hmm. that's the, the crux of, of the illustration. The parable is this freedom that the master has to do with what to do with his own what he pleases. That is analogous to God's sovereignty. That's the point. God is sovereign. God is the master. He can do yeah. with his own what he pleases. So by extension, those who would deny the the biblical right and prerogative of private property if they take that far enough if they if they trace out their own logic to its conclusion ultimately should also deny the sovereignty of god yeah yeah absolutely and you know there are other examples that i would i would even point to uh you who you listeners about uh if you want to look at other examples of wages um, First Kings chapter five has an example where Solomon and Hiram from Tyre agree to wages mm. because Solomon is trying to build the temple of the Lord and is going to pay him for it. And then another good example is Jacob and Laban in Genesis chapter 30. In fact, we see that Laban changes his and, and, and Jacob complains about this. He gets his wages changed 10 times uh, in the middle of the contract. So I think. Uh, in there, uh, you know, Laban says, okay, well, uh, the wages are give me all of the spotted, you know, spotted sheep, the spotted lambs, and then changes his mind because Jacob starts getting uh, blessed with the, with the non-spotted lambs. And then, and then Jake, and then Laban's like, okay, well now, okay, well give me the non-spotted ones. And then again, Jacob, God blesses Jacob, but the spotted lambs. And either way, Laban is trying to um, oppress Jacob and get an advantage over him. But God is not blessing that. God is blessing Jacob's efforts and his faithfulness. And so Laban is oppressing Jacob by changing his wages several times. And he does that with, you know, with his daughters, you know, kind of kind of doing a little 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 bait and switch there right. uh, with, with that to try to get to get to get an, an advantage over over Jacob. Mm -hmm. But it never doesn't work out in his favor. But that's an example of oppression because the wages are agreed upon. But then the employer changes it mm. midstream mm -hmm. without an agreement by the employee. That would be in a form of, an opp of oppression. But there's nothing, I couldn't find anything in scripture where a third party, particularly the government, enforced a certain wage between the employer and the employee. It was always between them to agree upon. And that oppression involves... Uh, someone not honoring their agreed upon commitment, if that makes sense. So uh, that's just an example, uh, just using the issue of wages yeah. with regards to the topic of socialism there. Um, 
And so, uh, and I mentioned the, uh, the, the main issues uh, uh, the, uh, uh, of the Bible talks about oppression, um, Exodus, you know, do not steal, um, high taxation is viewed as wicked, 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, showing partiality to either rich or poor is wicked, Exodus 23, excuse me, Leviticus 19, um, God condemns false weights, Proverbs 20, and God wants a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Um, now, there are examples, though, where a coerced transfer of wealth is allowed, but that's only in the form of punishment for sin, for crimes. So, examples of that are uh, restitution for, th for theft and damage. Mm -hmm. So, Exodus 22 talks about if you steal someone's property, you are to return it and pay, you know, fourfold or fivefold, depending on the item as well, right, right. you know. Um, if, if you, if you, if you hold something for a neighbor and it gets lost or stolen, or destroyed, and you're held culpable for that, you have to uh, pay restitution for that. Um, so there's, there are times where, uh, a third party would come in and forcibly transfer wealth from one to another, but that's because a wicked transfer of wealth has already happened. Right. An unlawful trade. You stole something from that person. So that, that belonged to them by making you pay it back with interest mm -hmm. is actually bringing things back to the way they should have been, you know, because you took that property from that person and now they can't enjoy that property. They can't use that property to gain more, more wealth. You've denied them that. Therefore, you need to pay it back to them fourfold or fivefold, right? So again, it's all because of crimes. Hmm. And that, 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 that transaction takes place, but it has nothing to do with, with some kind of systemic oppressor oppression. We need to balance the scales and everyone has to make the same amount of money or be perfectly materially equal. That is just not seen in scripture, uh, there. So, um, at the end of the day, yeah. So like, what, yeah, does this, what does this mean for Christians practically? Like yeah. you got somebody who's, you know, uh, listening to this, you know, on their car ride to work. Uh, I mean, how is this, how should this inform our ethics, how we think about money, how we think about finances, how we think about, uh, you know, governance and, and, you know, taxation and property. How should this form us? Some of these biblical principles we've been touching on. Yeah. Well, certainly as a Christian, we need to, first of all, recognize that all stuff is God's stuff. Amen. Right? So I, I think of, I always think of Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, verses 17 and 18, where God tells Israel and Moses, like, I have given you the ability to make wealth. Mm. You know, so it's God who gives wealth and the ability to make wealth and to get wealth. So it's all God's. And if you get it, God enables you to get it. Um, now, and so in that regard, we need to be good stewards as God's people. We need to be stewards. That involves, number one, being responsible for ourselves, okay? Not being a burden unnecessarily upon others and upon the church. We need to take care of our families, okay? So that means you see mother, father, brother, sister in need. You do what you can to help that person. It means supporting the church, you know, uh, the, 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 the preachers, the, the teachers are worthy of double honor, 
the elders are worthy of double honor, as Paul says. And that, that word honor often means pay. Yeah, pay. I mean, I, yeah. I, well, I can say I'm not an elder, so I can yeah. <laughs> I can say that, and it's okay. <laughs> but quite frankly, you know, bluntly, that, that yeah. word honor often means That's what pay. Paul's talking about in that yeah. passage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so the church needs to be supported. We need to keep the lights on, um, you know, God's, God's workers. And then... There should be charity. We should have a, you know, we should be cheerful givers. We should have a desire to help the genuine widows, orphans, the fatherless, the poor. But at the end of the day, we, just like Ananias and Sapphira, are free to use the wealth as we are led. Now, we, we always want to be making sure that we're being led by the Holy Spirit. But at the end of the day, we're, we're not going to be, or we should not be punished by, by, the civil magistrate by the state for how we, you know, how we gave our wealth away or how we did not give our wealth away. So we're to be charitable and generous and should be and should encourage it. But keep in mind that greed and stinginess are sins. They're not crimes. And that's one thing that as Christians we need to keep in mind is that the civil government is is meant to they're here to punish crimes, not to punish sins. So being being greedy, being stingy is a sin and it's not a crime um and so crimes involve theft of property such as stealing damaging other people's property or using unequal weights and measures which is another form of stealing as far as the poor uh we need to never forget as christians that the poor will always be with us so any anyone's claim to end poverty or to be able to end poverty that really needs to be taken with a grain of salt like we need to really have discernment when someone is so bold as to say, hey, everyone, my plan is going to end poverty as we know it. It's like, well, uh, I don't know, because Jesus said that the poor will always be with us. So um, that's not to say that we don't help the poor, but it's a recognition that uh, uh, you can't solve poverty this side of, of Christ's kingdom. Um, and that the importance of the family and the church is it needs to be high in our minds. First uh, Timothy chapter five, eight through sixteen. You know, if if a person is unwilling to help their immediate family, they're worse than unbeliever, worse than an unbeliever. So that needs to be uh, at the forefront of our minds. So, you know, as Christians, we need to have accountability, discipleship, and relationship in order to help those who are in genuine need. And the government simply can't provide that. And we have to be careful when. When, when government individuals or people who are, who are pursuing government office are basically uh, virtue signaling as, of, you know, just as Judas did. You know, shouldn't this be given to the poor? You know, I love the poor too. Well, keep in mind, they always pay themselves an administrative fee regardless of how, how many poor there are. And in some ways, it's dangerous because the more poor there are, the more administrative fees Caesar gets to have. You know, and when you start setting up a system like that, it actually becomes a, a self-serving system, right? Like, think about it this way. If you were to end all poverty tomorrow, who would be the first people out of a job? The people that are running the welfare offices of the civil government. If everyone was rich and all that they needed, the first people to lose their job would be Caesar's people. So it's almost it almost becomes, even inadvertently, a self-licking ice cream cone, like they want to. <laughs> I haven't heard that analogy before. <laughs> yeah, it, it sustains itself, <laughs> and, it, and 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 it incentivizes itself to keep people in poverty because that's how Judas skims the top. 
Yeah. You know, so, and and I know that people, you know, and, and genuine Christians and, and who love the poor, we were concerned about safety nets and, and maybe there, maybe there needs to be some kind of discussion of, of the existence of a safety net. But at the end of the day, the government is the least qualified to build a net and to handle it, right? Um, and I don't know that God has given that to the government yeah. as a role, right? So we, t- we we were talking in earlier episodes. You can refer back to season one about the different spheres of sovereignty that the in in you know God's uh, economy, and you know part of that being tying back to this question, you know what be what is the appropriate role for for some of these institutions? We've been talking about family, church, and and, and government. So it ties back to that question. Oh, absolutely, it does. Mm-hmm. And you know things like a progressive income tax. By the way, that's what Karl Marx advocated for. Um, we'll circle, not, we're going to circle back to some taxes. Yeah, yeah but tax it's, not, issues, it's but. not necessarily biblical because yeah, yeah. because in the Old Testament we see in First Samuel yeah. when the people cry out for a king mm-hmm. like the nations. What does what does Samuel say? He says this king is going to oppress you. And what does oppression look like? Ten percent. Yeah. Ten percent tax is considered to be a tyrannical, oppressive, by Samuel, by the prophet Samuel. We already pay more than that. Most, you know, a good chunk of oh, yeah. of Americans pay more than that. So we're already going past what is viewed to be oppressive. Um, and then, as far as the progressive income tax, you know, people might, you know, might argue for that. Well, why, you know, the poor and the rich, you know, should pay different amounts. That's interesting because in Exodus chapter thirty, and I just throw this out there to kind of stir the pot a little bit. In chapter thirty, verses eleven through sixteen, is the census tax, mm. and here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. That's interesting. Yeah. There is no progressive tax for the census tax yeah. in the land of Israel. We're going to circle back to some of the tax questions in, in a future episode, but I, uh, but I appreciate you kind of laying the foundation there. I would just share kind of yeah. two, two takeaways on the socialism yeah, yeah, yeah. and Marxism front, just as I'm hearing you reflect on some of these. Uh, and it's just been you know, tremendously helpful, brother. So thank you for laying this out. So first takeaway in my mind is, you know, uh, Try to avoid envy, right? So here's here's yeah. my, my question to somebody who's like driving in their car, listening to this on the way to work. Okay, so somebody, look, somebody's always going to have more than you. Okay, you're going to work, you want to get ahead, you're you're working hard, you're saving up, and, and praise the Lord for that, right? That's that's good. Now, my question is, when you see somebody who's quote unquote made it, right? Yeah. They've got a lot of money. Maybe they are they're your age and they're already retired, and here you are still punching a clock. Like you, when you see that. Yeah. How do you react? Right. Are you like jealous of them? Are you envious of them? Are you grateful for their success? Are you like, like, let's say somebody had some kind of, you know, privilege over you. They got some, some opportunity to, I don't know, join a startup that went public and they ended up getting this huge windfall of cash. Mm -hmm. And you see, this is happening to somebody that you've known for years and here, here they go, they're retiring and they're, you know, 30, 35. Yeah. Like, how do you feel about like, praise the Lord. That's what we should be feeling. Right. Praise the Lord for your success, friend. Mm-hmm. Praise the, you know what I mean? Like, that's so good for you. I'm so happy for you. Or, man, that should have been me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Watch yeah. out for that. Yeah. Watch out for that. Actually, this brings up to mind uh, another, I love, I love Tolkien. I love C.S. Lewis. But if you, 
you know, those of you listening remember Lord of the Rings. So Tolkien hits on the issue of envy as well in the issue with the Ring of Power. Yeah. So there's a scene in which Frodo, who has the, he's the ring bearer, he, he has the Ring of Power, he's having a discussion with Boromir. Now Boromir is, a, a, is from the land of Gondor, and he wants the ring to save his kingdom, or he, he says he does. And he says, he says to Frodo, that the ring, it came to you, that came to you only by unhappy chance. And it could have been mine, it should be mine, give it to me. So he goes down this progressive conversation where, okay, that's not yours except by unhappy chance. It's only by chance alone that you got that thing. And it could have been mine. And then it, in a way it should be mine. And then he goes and tries to forcibly take it from hmm. Frodo. And that's interesting because from a worldview where everything is random chance and God is not sovereign over all things, right. it's true. What is yours could have been mine, and who's to say that I can't take it from you? Right. Why can't I? You know, it's a might, denial might of God's sovereignty. Right. Yeah, might yeah. makes right, right? Yeah. So, envy is 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 a powerful thing, and we need to fight against it. And so, like, it, so yeah. if you if you see somebody who's got some advantage that yeah. you don't have or or didn't have, like, is the response? You know, friend, praise the Lord for that advantage, and that's that's a wonderful thing. And now, for me and for my household, what can I do? I want to, I want to go and and pursue. You know, I'm working towards the same. And you know, maybe you go and and you try different opportunities. You take risks and, and see what it takes to get there. You know, you can plant all these seeds, but just remember, at the end of the day, that God is sovereign, and unless He unless he waters, there will be no increase. And I know that's not the application of that is not necessarily economic, but, but here in this case, I think there's, there's some analogous, uh, pro, uh there, you know, rules of thumb that can be applied there as well. So I would say what, number one, watch out for envy. Number two, the other side of that coin is, you know, I think some of what we've talked about sounds like it might be heartless to the poor. I would argue just the opposite, right? Yeah. what we've talked about is lean into loving the poor through your family mm -hmm. and your church, right? Mm -hmm. So like we might say, okay, well, there's this excessive taxation that kind of cuts under us, cuts out from under us the extent to which we can give to others, the extent to which we can help the poor, love the poor. Um, but higher taxes as unjust and unbiblical as they may be, I mean, we'll, we'll evaluate that question in, in yeah, future episodes, absolutely. but even if, even if we land on the conclusion, the answer to that is yes, that those are, those are not biblically justified, doesn't mitigate our responsibility to be charitable, especially locally. Right. So, and it doesn't just have to look like money. It can look like time invested. It can look like mentoring. A lot of it is time. Yeah. It's, it's time. Yeah. And if you look, if you're a, an entrepreneur and, and you see someone in your midst who, you know, you know, they're on hard times, but they're willing and able to work. They want to work hard. They want to come up, you know, give them a job, give them training, help them build out their, their resume that they can then be equipped to go and to go and, and enter a workforce that's, yeah. you know, becoming ever more competitive and ever more specialized and ever more needing of particular skills, equip them with those if it's in your means to do so. Yeah. I would say lean into loving the poor and, you know, the agency through which that happens, you know, not not primarily the state so much as first and foremost, you and your your household, you know, if you if you have a family business, something like that, like can yeah. you employ someone or 
if if all else fails and that individual has no family or extended fam family of their own to help them out, you know, through the church, you know, what does it look like yeah. for a church to go, you know, hang out at, you know, a local uh, a local prison or a local yeah. rehab facility and just go and go and talk to some folks and share the gospel with them, share the good news of Jesus and and say, look, you know, there are there are actual tangible ways that, you know, you can be you can be loved through this and and lord willing even raised up out of yes yeah. and the last thing i'll say and i'll turn it over to you for closing but is that coerced charity actually creates resentment not genuine love and actually only hurts the social fabric of society mm. so think of it i try to boil it down to the simplest example and i would say like with my children if if, if they're bickering over a toy let's say, or someone has a toy and the other one wants it. If I were to forcibly take the toy from one and give it to the other, what's interesting is that the, the, one, the child that had the toy first or has just lost it, they don't typically get angry at me. They get angry at the person that they had to give it to. Like I forced them to give it to their sister and now they're angry at their sister. They view the sister or the other child as the enemy, not so much me. Mm. So it actually breeds resentment mm. between the parties you're trying to reconcile when you take from one and forcibly give it to the other. It's not out of love. That's not charity. That's out of coercion. And all that breeds is resentment and more envy and more the tearing of the fabric of society. So there's something to ponder when we think about what Caesar does when he uses force to take from one and give to another. Hmm. Yeah. Well, this this has been a really uh, just powerful and, and impactful and enlightening conversation. So again, brother, thank you for preparing and, and doing some some research and oh, giving this topics a lot of thought. Uh, if you have follow-up questions, we would love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out at the number two, twoguysinabible.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at twoguysinabible, facebook.com forward slash twoguysinabible, or twoguysinabible.org. Again, we would love to have feedback, questions. Uh, we are all ears on, on these kinds of subjects. We're, yeah. we're we're teachable uh, from and by scripture. So if there are passages that we have missed or that you feel were handled uh, unfairly, you know, please reach out, let us know. And, and we, we are eager to, to hear back and, and get that feedback and to, to learn if, if indeed the Lord uh, has, has that in his, in his word, something different than what we've been saying. So thank you again for listening. Thank you for tuning in. And we will catch y'all next time, Lord willing. All right, take care. Take care and God bless. God bless.